0: Welcome to Bio, a podcast produced by the Biographers International Organization. Bio is devoted to promoting the work of biographers and advocating for biography as a genre with the support of biographers and biography lovers worldwide. I'm Bio member Lisa Napoli in Los Angeles. On each episode, we'll talk with a biographer about his or her work. This time, author and veteran journalist, political analyst, Jonathan Alter. His new book, his very best, Jimmy Carter, A Life. Alter spoke with author David Greenberg in conversation conducted virtually over Zoom on October 7th, 2020.
1: You, you know, you've written on Franklin Roosevelt. We understand the historic momentousness of his presidency. The books on Obama, obviously topical and timely, but why Carter? What drew you to Carter as a subject? What about Carter sustained your interests over the many years that a biographer has to devote to his research and subject? Um, you know, what about Jimmy Carter uh, convinced you that it was, it was time for a big definitive biography like this?
2: So first of all, I wanna thank everybody who is uh, tuning in. It's very nice of you to take the time to do so. And I wanna thank uh, Gayford Steinberg for hosting this, um, this event. And I wanna thank um, Bio. You know, writing as I think any writer knows can be very lonely and it really helps to have other writers, especially people who are also trying to do biographies to be able to talk to and just run ideas past. So this organization—that's just one of many, many reasons why this is a vital organization. It's just so important to nurture narrative nonfiction in the culture. Uh, we don't have enough institutions that are doing that. So, in answer to your question, um, you know, it. My only association with Carter uh, before this book was that when I was um, twenty and a college intern in his speech writing office in the summer of 1978. And I met him, you know, for a split second on the 4th of July, shook his hand. And uh, I actually wrote some talking points for what they called Rose Garden rubbish, you know, things he would say uh, in uh, in the Rose Garden. And I later wrote a piece saying, I was a teenage presidential speechwriter, but I really wasn't. Um, and I... Um, I actually then, in 1980, I worked briefly as a volunteer for Ted Kennedy, and that gives you some idea of how hostile much of the Democratic Party was to Jimmy Carter that year. It's one of the dumbest things I've, I've done, not, not maybe at the top of the list, but you know, getting up there, because it was just crazy for Kennedy to challenge a, you know, a good president who maybe didn't satisfy him on every issue, but certainly shouldn't have been challenged for the nomination. And then I interviewed Carter once when I was a columnist for Newsweek in 2000 and then I didn't really think very much of him. I kind of followed him from afar. I was kind of annoyed when he titled this book Palestine Peace or Apartheid in 2006. I thought that was kind of a dumb thing to do, which he later, when I talked to him about it, agreed that he regretted that title. And then in 2015, I was in a book group, am in a book group in New York, and somebody knew Carter's grandson, Jason, who had uh, uh, run for governor of Georgia and lost narrowly in 2014. And we were reading 13 Days in September by Lawrence Wright, which is a an account of Camp David. Um, and <clears throat> I was very impressed by Carter's virtuoso performance at Camp David, and even more so when Jason and President Carter came to our book group and he talked about Camp David and he talked about what he did in human rights and on other issues. And I was just kind of like, I sort of realized, you know, this guy really does deserve another look. And then when I mentioned that to my editor, the late great Alice Mayhew, who died this year, Simon & Schuster editor, and she was Jimmy Carter's editor. And she really urged me to do this. And she, of course, you know, opened all the doors. So I spent a, a, a large amount of time with Jimmy and Rosalind Carter and their family, and uh, you know, in their home. You know, I, I built a house with them in Memphis. I, I, uh, I interviewed him one way or another in transit, in his office, at his house, more than a dozen times uh, over a five-year period, and then he, until recently, when he had a fall, I had an email relationship with him, so I, I could send him questions and i'd send him like 15 questions and i'd go out for a walk and i'd come back an hour later and he would have answered all 15 you know he was Mm -hmm. he super transparent so i just got kind of fascinated by him and i i concluded that he was that his presidency was underrated and his post presidency was a tad overrated and then what happened so i started this when i in early 2015 and then i remember. One day, and I was kind of interviewing people in reverse actuarial order. Like I, you know, I made sure to fly to Minnesota to get Walter Monday. I was scared that people were going to die. And sure enough, you know, not long after I interviewed them, George H.W. Bush, Paul Volcker, uh, uh, Harold Brown, who was his defense secretary, and Zbigniew Brzezinski, who was his national security advisor. They all died within a year of when I interviewed them. So I wanted to like, get to these folks before they passed on. And so that was kind of motivating me at the time. And then one day at the Carter Library, and as you know, David, you know, these projects entail like a large amount of time in the presidential library where there are millions of documents and you feel kind of overwhelmed. And so I got a, you know, I was called by MSNBC and they said, Donald Trump is announcing today that he's running for president. So get over this in the summer of 2015, get over to a studio in Atlanta and you know, comment on this, he came down an escalator and like, just give us your take. And so I go over there and I hear what he says. It's unbelievably demagogic and scary. I say that on TV. And then I go back to the library and I realized like, I'm getting a kind of a relief from the toxicity of Trump started that day and has continued for the last five years. So Carter became almost a, a break for me. I could he kept me sane in the time of Trump. And because, you know, he, he obviously was a political failure, but substantively in so many areas, he was a success and a very far-sighted one, not to mention being extraordinarily intelligent, honest to the point of hurting himself. Like at one point he he gives an interview on the eve of the 1980 convention to Dan Rather on 60 Minutes, the highest rated show on all of television, and Rather asks him to grade himself. And he says, well, I, I, I give myself a B minus on that, maybe a C plus on that, you know? And I mean, the level of honesty, when I interviewed Rather about it, he said he was just stunned by this. And when I interviewed Carter about it, uh, he said, yeah, I think those grades, were, they, that was about right, you know? And, and so, just the contrast to Trump in almost every area was extraordinary. That's not to mean that he never exaggerated, uh, but he didn't lie. Um, What he would do would be sort of sugarcoat his own past. So that took me quite a while to take the sugar off of the myth that he had created for himself, as all politicians do. But the more I tried to kind of peel away the onion, the more compelling it became because he's Super complicated, and there are many layers to him and i I agree with Stephen Colbert that Trump is kind of boring, like you know we understand him, we get him, right we know him, we know everything that he 's about with carter you 're constantly finding these new dimensions to who he is and and uh, and that kept me fascinated throughout
1: well it 's interesting I mean in the book I noticed you you lead in the introduction with a very um, persuasive case for his being underrated. And you, know, you list a number of his accomplishments domestically and in foreign policy. But when you get into the narrative, um, it doesn't read at all like a brief for Carter. And I mean, I don't think it, it, it reads as the opposite either. You, you really do get a sense of this complexity. Uh, even to the point where a lot of the main um, set pieces or the most dramatic chapters are, uh, as with his presidency, um, stories of struggle, of, of defeat, of, of even failure, the, the Malay speech, the hostage crisis, uh, and so on. Um, so how did you balance it, I guess I might say. Especially, I think, when you've spent time with someone. I mean, I know I have this with John Lewis. Um, you 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 come to like them, you come to admire them, and to really then go back to historian mode or journalist mode and be, you know, neutral, call them as you see them, <laughs> put in the negative as well as the positive, which you do. Um, tell me a little bit about your thinking and the process and, in the portrait, in, in making this portrait, this complicated portrait of Carter that finally emerges.
2: Well, I mean, I think it's really important uh, not to write hagiography, but also not to write uh, a takedown. I mean, nobody wants to read a, a long book that's just a takedown if somebody's a bad guy. Um, I, I, you know, I think for you it, it's really hard because John Lewis, to my mind, is is a saint, and I don't think Jimmy Carter really is. I mean, he's done some extraordinarily important things for the world, Um, but uh, he's also a very difficult guy in a lot of ways and um, politically clueless at certain points, and you just have to be as honest as you can and, and, you know, at a certain point, not worry about what People might think of it, but what's interesting is his own family is very um, clear-eyed about him, and I got a nice note from his son Jeff the other day, an email. Um, he liked the book, and 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 there's a lot, not to like, in the book, yeah. but but, I think that Carter's commitment to honesty, uh, it, you know, suggested that I should be honest too. Um, and not try to gild the lily or, or otherwise. And also, I I mean, especially in the early part, so I, in a very important part of the book and part that I consider to be especially interesting and fresh was that, um, so he, he grows up, he's got this white supremacist father. His mother takes care of black patients for free and kind of teaches him compassion. She's not actually an integrationist herself, but he becomes one when he's in the Navy. He's been mostly raised by an illiterate black farmhand woman, Rachel Clark, um, who after his mother died, he admitted, um, he knew better than his own mother, who was a great character when a Johnny Carson, uh, she was called Ms. Lillian. Um, and, but uh, so he goes in the Navy and he becomes an integrationist and he, he protects a, a, a black, the first black midshipman who's been uh, uh, hazed and he protects his crewmates who are black on the submarine. And then his father dies in 1953 and he comes home and he's thrust into civic life in one of the meanest counties in the South, Sumter County, Georgia. And his, the sheriff there who was a friend of Carter's, Martin Luther King described as the meanest man in the world. he was using cattle prods on 14-year-old girls and what does carter do so i think most people would say well he's jimmy carter he objects no he ducks for 18 years he is silent and so then he broke his silence when he became governor of georgia in the first moments of his inaugural address he said the time for racial discrimination is over and there's a whole by this time he had met with daddy king he'd run a terrible dog whistle, code word campaign, appealing, not saying anything racist, but appealing to rednecks, segregationists, got elected and immediately turned on a dime. And the white conservatives all felt he had betrayed them. The black Georgians said, sitting in the audience, he said, what? The time for racial discrimination is over. He said, what? And then he went on to be a very liberal governor president and you know uh, very uh, active on racial justice issues hunter thompson fell for him uh, hard and helped make him president because in 1974 he heard carter give a speech uh, using bob dylan lyrics and uh, issuing a stinging attack on the criminal justice system in georgia which is relevant to this day and and so, you know, he, he spent the second half of his life making up for what he did not do in the first half. And the way he made that decision in 1970, which involves this very eccentric Cessna pilot, was very close to the King family and introduced him to Daddy King. There's a great story in that, but I, I'll let you read the book to find out. But he undergoes this, this transformation. And so it's that kind of thing that Intrigued me about him. And when he ran into trouble, basically, um, you know, he got swapped by circumstances mostly beyond his control in the uh, second half of his term. The first half, he went above 70% at one point. And then during the gas crisis, when everybody was waiting in line for for gas, he went down to 28%. So the, the electorate was much more fluid in those days and the fluctuations were much greater. Than we're used to, and uh, the events get really compelling. Uh, you know, at, at a certain point, the Rockefellers, Kissinger, uh, they, uh, their, uh, Gopher, who's the Chavaron's closest companion when he's in exile, pulls the wool over Carter's eyes, and he gets gets back into the United States. That precipitates. The hostage crisis, the seizure of the hostages, um, and you know there's the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan, so there are these external events, ridiculous inflation. But what I tried to do, David, and this was something that I felt really strongly about and that I struggled with, is to separate the short term political setbacks and the goofy things that happen to him, you know, a lust in my heart or getting attacked by a killer rabbit when he's in a canoe, you know. This, these things are fun, and they may and I, I cover them, I have fun with them, but I tried to like, focus on the legislation yeah. that has actually changed the country in big ways, just to give a very quick example. like Trump would not have been impeached if it wasn't for Jimmy Carter, the Ethics and Government Act of 1978, the Inspector General's Act of 1978 that protected whistleblowers, they created inspector generals, FISA courts. Carter got more legislation through in four years than either Clinton or Obama did in eight years, partly because he had a Democratic Congress for a full four years. And the press just didn't cover a lot of it. They got bored. There were so many signing ceremonies. Every other week he'd be signing some bill. Oh, what is it this week? I, I talked to this one reporter. I said, Have you ever heard of PERPA? The legislation he signed called PERPA? He goes, No, no, what, what was that? He was covering the White House. So, well, that was a bill that allowed public utilities to use clean energy. You know, kind of a big deal, right? You know, like, I mean, I opened the book before before the section that Will, uh, with him putting solar panels on the roof of the White House. And then Reagan takes them down. And, you know, he introduces fuel economy standards. And then the most tragic thing, so he does all these things on the environment. He protects a hundred million acres in Alaska, doubling the size of the National Park Service. The Clean Air and Clean Water Act uh, amendments were hugely important in cleaning up the environment. And I could go on in that, but the tragic part of it is at the end of his presidency, he gets a report from his main environmental advisor on every one of the prior reports he had implemented what was recommended. And in this case, it was an action memo were addressing what was then called carbon pollution some scientists called it global warming it wasn't known outside the scientific community i found carter underlining articles about it in 1970 when he was governor because instead of playing golf he liked to read scientific journals you know that is what he did for fun right and he would have addressed climate change in the early 1980s imagine how better off the planet would be if Jimmy Carter had been reelected. So the stakes of that 1980 election, they really ratcheted up in my mind. And I I kind of developed like a a, a real determination to to write a revisionist history that was focused on the farsightedness that he brought to the presidency for all of his shortcomings.
1: Yeah, yeah, I I wanna encourage um, audience members to put questions uh, into the chat because we had to reboot the meeting, um, the chat's now mostly empty. So, okay. to anyone who put questions in before, but take the opportunity now to do so. Um, I do want to say I think I think the case for him on the environment and a whole host of these other issues uh, is is very strong. Um, so, do you do you conclude that it was he was as you said a minute ago he was swamped by. You know, the energy crisis, the hostage crisis, the invasion of Afghanistan. I mean, he certainly was dealt a bad hand. Um, do you think anyone was destined to, to fail, if we can call, call it that, in you know, being a one-term president in that period of American history? Um, or, or was Carter also uh, um, complicit in his own uh, frustrations?
2: He was complicit, definitely. He made mistakes, but you know, he, uh, it, it turned out to be a blowout, but he was within the margin of error five days before the election, according to all polls. So at a certain point, in part because uh, the uh, election day was the one year anniversary of the seizure of the hostages and they still hadn't been released. So all the news magazines, the networks, and in those days, If it wasn't on the evening news, it didn't happen. That was the spine of the whole campaign, and they were all doing these retrospectives, hostages with blindfold. Everybody was reminded that Carter hadn't gotten them out, in part, I think, because the Reaganites were conspiring with the Iranians, but that's a whole other issue. Um, But the uh, the um, you know so that hurt him. The Kennedy challenge hurt him a lot. And, uh, and then the main thing that I think hurt him was the economy. And so this is where um, <laughs> it's a real hinge of history. So one of the things I like to do in this book is introduce minor characters. I mentioned without telling the story about the Cessna pilot, but there's a, a, a woman named Peggy Clausen, who I, I, I mentioned in one paragraph, one story. So Peggy Clausen was married to a guy named A.W. Clausen, who was the head of the Bank of America. And he was a, uh, had been on Carter's transition team, very interested in international things like Carter, later became head of the World Bank. And arguably, Peggy Clausen changed history. Here's how. Uh, so Carter um, makes a terrible mistake after the Malay speech in the summer of 1979 and he fires his cabinet. Um, and uh, among the people he fired was his treasury secretary. He decides he's gonna take the chairman of the Fed who was loyal to him and make him treasury secretary which opens up, opens up the chairmanship of the Fed. And at this time, you know the economy is having a lot of trouble. Inflation, he can't get it down and it is robbing people of their savings. It's hurting him politically. And so a, a lot of people say, take this guy who's the head of the New York Fed named Paul Volcker. He's a good guy. Later became, when I interviewed him, he was a strong Carter supporter. Thought he'd been much underrated president. Really uh-huh. admired the man. And he um, he's told, this, this is the guy you should have as chairman of the Fed. So he's considering him. And um, he's told, Volcker comes in for the interview. Volcker tells me, I blew the interview. Uh, I told him I'm gonna to be totally independent. I'm gonna do what I think is necessary to get rid of inflation. And so Carter's political people say, well, should you look for somebody else? Why don't you try this guy, A.W. Claussen, who's the head of Bank of America? He'll be really compliant for us, right? And so he calls Claussen and he's on his porch in California at his at his vacation home. And his wife, Peggy, is sitting next to him. The president's on the phone. You know, uh, why don't you come to Washington we'll talk about you maybe becoming chairman of the Fed and Peggy Claussen it's going no 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 we're not moving to washington no 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 i don't want to go to washington so clausen says you know mr president I, peggy just peggy and i just don't want to come to washington so then um uh bert lance who had resigned in disgrace uh and he um later found out from william sapphire that actually one of the reasons sapphire and the republicans went so hard against him is they were afraid that Carter would appoint him as chairman of the Fed, and that he would do for Carter what Arthur Burns did for Nixon right. in seventy two, and you know, uh, like, open the punch bowl and like, basically right. assure First his reelection. Right. And I think that Lance would have done that, but Lance was disgraced. But he finds out that Volker's on the list, so he calls Jerry Rafshun, who was a top aide to Carter, and he tells a lot of funny stories in my book and. It was a huge help to me, this, this man, Jerry Rafshun. And he says, Jerry, if you appoint Paul Volcker, you will mortgage the presidency to, to Volcker. And, and he can't, he can't be Volcker. It's disastrous. Carter's going to lose if it's Volcker. And so Jerry, like, rushes to the Oval Office. The door is closed. He goes to Jody Powell's office. He's typing. What are you doing, Jody? typing a statement, Paul Volcker will be the new chairman of the Fed. So Volcker, in September of 1980, 40 years ago this month, what does he do right before the election? He jacks up interest rates. They they had gone as high as 19% interest rates. Think about that. And before the election, they were 15% interest rates. So of course, Carter was, I mean, he was going into a gale force wind. He also was facing a terrific candidate in Ronald Reagan just in like pure candidate skills. Carter was a bad communicator, you know, and and so he's facing the great communicator, um, but it wasn't inevitable that he was gonna lose because a lot of Americans did realize that he was a decent, smart, capable man. Uh, and But he, um, he, he was his own worst enemy politically a lot of the time, and it drove his wife crazy because Rosalind has the political brains in the family, and she was always saying, "Like, why can't you do this in a second term?" When he would do something politically unpopular, which he would do over and over again, he would do right. the po- the right politically unpopular thing. Whether it was conservative, like balancing the budget, he was very conservative on certain fiscal issues, or you know, or uh, you know, liberal, like get the Panama Canal treaties, which Reagan made his career attacking him on that, and and. Uh, you know, that prevented a huge Vietnam in Central America. The Pentagon said minimum of 100,000 troops in Panama in perpetuity if we don't improve these treaties. Of course, when Reagan becomes president, does he renounce the treaties? No, because they, it was right. the right thing to do. Right. So that was all just a political thing by Reagan. Anyway, I'm, I'm babbling on here. I'll ask another question.
1: Yeah, no, I've, I've, there's a lot more I want to ask, but there's also a lot of good ones piling uh, up in the queue. Um, one question uh, is sort of about his victory in 76, um, asking specifically, you know, how did Ford manage to win California? But I think even more interestingly, or to expand that, you know, Carter won the whole South pretty much with maybe accepting Virginia. And, you know, the, the map that he won on is very different from what Democrats expect to win on today. Right. Maybe talk about what his coalition looked like, how he ran, how he presented himself, who got in his corner in 76, and how it was that California goes Republican and the Deep South went Carter.
2: Well, California, um, remember, like Reagan had been a very successful governor there, and Orange County very populous county, which is now trending democratic, but at that time it was one of the most Republican counties in the entire country, and a huge bundle of votes that came from there and from uh, the uh, inland California, you know, very conservative. So in those days there weren't really battleground states as such; like everything was up for grabs, and Carter won Ohio, but you know, lost Illinois. Uh, just the map was just very different. Um, uh, he, his main primary opponent, he kept finishing second, was the guy I had been for as a college student, Mo Udall, wow. wonderful guy who uh, uh, said after he lost a primary, uh, the people have spoken, the bastards. <laughs> <laughs> and, and But if he had been nominated, you know, if they nominated a liberal instead of a moderate like Carter, he never would have won that election because Carter was kind of a a speed bump in the traffic flow of history, the country was moving sharply to the right in 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 the uh, mid seventies, and they voted for Carter in the South just because he was a southerner, and there hadn't been a southerner since Zachary Taylor in eighteen forty eight you know so as Haley Barber said, they voted their hearts, not their their you know their politics and and any other democratic candidate, I think would have lost to Ford by a significant margin uh ford almost won that election he made a, a strong comeback right. but carter one of the reasons i put andy warhol's carter on the cover is i wanted to convey that he was he was cool in 76 you know he uh, the all of the musicians were behind him and um and you know we forget because by 80 he was so deeply uncool that we right. forget 76 he he really caught a wave, and there was a freshness to him, and and he also some of the themes are similar to Joe Biden's themes, and you know Biden was the first senator to endorse Carter. Interestingly, um, he talked about healing, and a government as good as its people. He was the first one to say, "I feel your pain." The empathy that you know Bill Clinton later said, "I feel your pain," that started with Jimmy Carter, and um, he um, you know he had this restorative, refreshing uh, sense that he conveyed after Watergate. And so one of the arguments I make is that he was both made and unmade by Watergate. He was made by Watergate because he came after this Nixon, Vietnam toxicity. And he was unmade because the press corps believed like every president's a crook. And they just assume this this is a bad guy like the rest of them. And I'm actually kind of hard on Bob Woodward in the book because you know, they just assume bad faith on Carter's part. And they have fixed, partly to Bill Sapphire, they fixed gate to any little flap that would happen with Carter. Meanwhile, he's doing things that every president until Trump did, like releases tax returns, you know, a level of transparency that became standard until until Trump. And, And then other, you know, ethics disclosure legislation, other things, just transparency, things like Saying what the contents of, you know, a barrel of chemicals—what are the toxic contents? Didn't to, you didn't have to disclose that. You know, uh, many, many things like that now that we we take uh, for granted, but that the press didn't care about. They were just interested in the Bert Lance scandal or whatever it was. And you know, Carter stuck with Lance too long. He should have cut him loose. He made political mistakes with Lance, but you know, they weren't compared to what's going on now it wasn't anything that carter did and and even lance it was for things that were kind of standard banking practices in a small town that didn't look good and it was right for him to resign but you know it was not uh he was not uh comparable to the trumpsters let's uh, let's
1: do a little um rapid fire some real short answers so i can pull I'm in. sorry
2: I'm sorry oh, I'm going no, to no. it's
1: it's interesting but just with uh with the, the clock running down. Okay. Um, so um, one person asked, you said at the outset and you argue in the book that his post-presidency is overrated. Um, that seems to surprise some people. Give us the brief uh, version okay. why, you, why you say okay.
2: that. So the main reason is that you, you have much more power when you're president. And so the conventional wisdom, oh, he wasn't a very good president, great post-president, and it's true that he, you know, he won the Nobel Peace Prize. He's a model for the world, and he's done some great stuff. Um, he does not run Habitat for Humanity. That's, he builds a house for one week a year, and he's on the board. He runs the Carter Center, and they have nearly eradicated Guinea worm disease, which is a huge accomplishment. And they've made progress on other diseases. And uh, particularly in the year 1994, he did important peacekeeping in Haiti and North Korea. Um, and they monitor elections. That's all great, but that pales in comparison to what he got accomplished as president. And also, he did let his ego intrude on certain occasions when he was, became what I call freelance secretary of state. And so, right. like when I interviewed George H.W. Bush, he was understandably, he was very complimentary of Carter in many ways, but he was understandably annoyed that in 1991, on the eve of the Gulf War, Carter writes letters to all the heads of state voting in the UN saying, don't vote with Bush. It's like we have only one president at a time. And he does it without
1: telling Bush.
2: Without what? Without telling Bush. Without telling Bush. Bush finds out from Brian Mulroney, you know. And some people on Bush's staff wanted to bring Carter up on the Logan Act. They were so angry about it. And Bush was very gracious when I talked to him. But Clinton would not talk to me on the record. He's still so pissed off at Carter. He gave him the Presidential Medal of Freedom, but they had a very fraught and fascinating relationship. And Carter was very frosty in what he told me on the record about Clinton. Clinton was understandably pissed at him because twice in 1994, he went on CNN before reporting to the president about what he had done to keep the peace in Haiti and North Korea. And you just don't do that, right? It was a a kind of a little bit of a grandstanding thing that he did. But my take on that is he shouldn't have done that. I understand why his successors didn't like him. His predecessor, Gerald Ford, he had a great relationship with. Um, Really, they did a lot of great things together actually. But I understood why his successors wouldn't like him. On the other hand, he did prevent wars in those two countries. And you know, so from the standards of our national interest, he was doing good things, but I just wanted to kind of correct the balance. So only about 10% of the book is on his post-presidency. And also the other big thing, David, is that a guy, an historian you know named Douglas Brinkley wrote a very thick book on his post-presidency until uh, you know, the late 90s, he's done a fair amount since. I thought the real hole in the line of scrimmage was the complete biography, which is just strangely enough, it's never been done. I mean, there've been 20 about, you know, Kennedy, you know, uh, and six on Ted Kennedy who wasn't even president. And obviously Ronald Reagan, there've been many and Carter, for whatever reason had just been ignored. And, and so I felt really lucky that I, uh, I was able to get out there first. There's another very good one that I think will be coming along next year. Uh, yeah, so. from, from
1: Kai Bird. From who Kai Bird yeah. Bird, know yeah. probably a lot of people here know. Um, I mean, one reason probably is that Carter is still alive and that there are challenges of writing about someone who's living, even if, you know, the presidency and the most important accomplishments are behind him. It it makes it a little harder when you can't see the whole life in completion. Um, one person asks about your concern. Did you worry that he would die before publication? How did, um, how did his being of advanced age affect your thinking? And I'll just dollop on top of that the question, have you heard, you told me you heard from his family, but have you heard from him his reaction at all to the book?
2: So um, he turns 96 on October 1st, and uh, he suffered a fall last year. You might have seen some pictures of him with bruises on his face. He was at Habitat site hammering. The guy was amazingly, not just mentally acute, but like when I was with him in 2016 on the site, he was like driving in nails with like three strokes. He's a master carpenter. He's still doing all that, but he had what's called a subdural hematoma, And he had to have, at the beginning of this year, he had to have uh, fluid drained from his brain and it has affected his sight. So he has not yet been able to actually read the book himself, but he's been hearing about it from his wife and from other people. And, you know, the, the people who've been telling him about it have been telling him, you know, that he should be happy that it was done, even though there's some things in it that they definitely don't want in there that they're not going to be happy about that relate to their family you know some pretty personal details some of those personal details they wanted me to have so for instance i got his love letters from the navy to Rosalind, which are very tender very in some cases explicit love letters which mrs carter gave to me no historian had ever seen them much less been able to use them Um, but there are other things i think they won't like i did get worried at one point that he would die because in 2015, he was diagnosed with metastatic melanoma, and uh, he thought he told me and he told the world he thought he only had two weeks to live. Um, and then they found out that he could be treated with a real wonder drug called Keytruda, which, along with prayer, according to him, saved his life. Uh, and but yeah, I was I was very I was very concerned about his health. Um, But what was amazing was for a guy in his mid 90s, his mental acuity was extraordinary. Uh, It was just, it was first rate. There was no diminishment in his mental acuity, which was mind blowing to me. Uh, And that, you know, obviously was a real help as I was doing the book. Um, Yeah, so we're
1: just about at the end here, but let me ask you about someone who's on all of our minds uh, these days: Trump. did you discuss Donald Trump with him? Um, he, he has, you know, he's, I think, publicly said a few things, but he hasn't been particularly outspoken. Uh, any thoughts on Carter, and his moral authority, and Trump, and attitudes?
2: Well, first, I thought you were going to say somebody who's been on our minds. I thought you were going to say Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Well, her too. Who he so appointed. I have yeah. a great story in the book about how he plucked her from obscurity and put yeah. her on the federal bench uh and she was later asked uh although if you look up under ginsburg in the index it's under bader the index it's the the only real mistake that i have right now i'm going to fix that and also i did an interview with with barack obama that was too late for the first printing so i'm going to put that in too but anyway on the ginsburg story um uh he um you know she said um I'm often asked, when did you know you wanted to be a judge? And she said, I never thought I could be a judge until Jimmy Carter decided that uh, it was uh, right to have half the human race be considered for you know, major roles in our society. And um, she said he changed the complexion of the federal judiciary and he did. He appointed more women to the federal bench than all of his predecessors combined times five. And he moved the entire federal government from tokenism to genuine diversity, even though he never had a Supreme Court nominee. But he, he was there when they, they expand, dramatically expanded the federal uh, court. So he, he actually, Trump says he's appointed the most judges, another lie, Carter appointed the most judges. Uh, and um, in terms of Trump, for the longest time, it was very frustrating to me that he wouldn't criticize Trump either before or after the election. And he was like ripping all these other presidents. He did the same thing with Maureen Dowd in, in a column that she wrote in 2017, and it really pissed off uh, Clinton and Obama because he's like saying critical things about Obama's foreign policy, critical things about the Clinton Foundation, nothing critical about Trump. The explanation I realized was very simple he wanted Trump to send him to North Korea as an envoy. And once, once Trump went himself, that was no longer gonna be possible. And Trump had called him and talked to him about China. He wrote Trump what Trump called a beautiful letter about dealing with China. He had, he had established diplomatic relations with China in 1979 and basically created with Deng Xiaoping what we consider to be the global economy just another one of his like little accomplishments, you know, creating the global economy with Deng Xiaoping. At that time, they had the GDP of sub-Saharan Africa and their trade with the United States and normalized relations. Anyway, that changed in 2018 and 19. And then he became a ferocious critic of Trump. And uh, last summer, I went to this event that they have to raise money for the Carter Center. And uh, at that event, he said that he thought that Trump wasn't a legitimate president, hadn't been legitimately elected. And uh, while he was for a younger candidate in the primaries and Buttigieg, Klobuchar and Booker all made pilgrimages to planes to see him. And he was for them. I think he probably was. Well, I, I, I shouldn't say I don't think he'd actually decided among the three of them, but those were his three candidates. But he's now you know, very enthusiastic supporter of Joe Biden. Uh, but he, um, you know, he wanted to be in the action. Right. And basically that drove him. So he, he was a guy who's been driven not just by his faith, not just by making up for his long silence, uh, but by just this ceaseless effort to uh, better himself, you know, in his own, he is, there's nothing humble about the guy, whatever image he projects better himself and better the world so he is doing his he never phones it in so he genuinely believed rightly that in his 90s he had something to offer because he did have a relationship with uh kim's father and grandfather Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and uh and and so he you know he thought rightly that he did have something to offer on on north korea but he just he kind of, um, he refused to get off the field and that had its advantages because he's continued to do some really important work. And this year, the Carter Center is going to monitor the American election, which will be interesting. His grandson, Jason, who's the one who brought him to the book group to bring full circle, is, is now running the Carter Center. Um, but he, he, he insists on um, you know, staying engaged. And and that can irritate people uh, when uh, that, in this case, came before a full-throated attack on Donald Trump. I think right. you also figured everybody's attacking Trump. What, what am I going to really add to it? So.
1: Right. It was like when uh, someone tweeted, yeah, now we just need that Humans of New York guy to, you know, diss Trump and the scales will fall from everyone. Yeah,
2: right. Then everybody will. One suddenly... more
1: tweet exposing from right, right, right. public opinion. But anyway, I, we've reached the end of our hour. We, we, we could easily do another. Apologies to those whose questions we didn't get to. Um, thanks again to Gayfried and Michael and to Will Swift and above all to Jonathan Alter. The book is his very best, Jimmy Carter, A Life uh, at uh brick-and-mortar bookstore, or an online website for you. And uh, thank you all. Thank you to Bio. And uh, we look forward to seeing you at at, at future events. Uh, Thanks, David. Thanks, everyone.
0: Author Jonathan Alter spoke with writer David Greenberg over Zoom about Alter's new biography of Jimmy Carter titled His Very Best. To learn more about Bio or to hear other episodes in our podcast series, please visit our website, biographersinternational.org. Enzo De Palma created our theme music. Sheree Newman is our podcast editor. I'm Lisa Napoli in Los Angeles. Thanks for listening to Bio.